Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Craig F. and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today's date is December 26, 2023. Uh, We're going to be reading from the big book uh, on page XXV. Uh, From the doctor's opinion, we're going to read the letter itself from To Whom It May Concern, three paragraphs down through the man, this man and over a hundred others appear to have recovered. Um, Today's readers are uh, Julie P. for the steps, Chris Chris C. for the traditions, Lulu L., Darlene H., and Crystal P. for the text. Newcomer greeters Betsy P and the host for the second hour is going to be Tamara C. Um, the OA preamble. Oh, the reference for numbers for yesterday first. Reference numbers for yesterday. Uh, the 7 a.m. meeting was 20,966, 20,966. And for the 10 a.m. meeting was 20,967. Uh, 20,966. OA Preamble, Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside contributions. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states that each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, Our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. I'm now going to ask Julie P. to read the 12 steps. Julie? Good morning. My name is Julie P. Let's see, compulsive overeater again this morning. And I'm from Minnesota, currently wintering in Texas. Here's the 12 steps we take. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 
11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, then I'm going to ask Chris G. to read the 12 Traditions. Chris? Thank you. Thank you. And uh, my name is Chris G. I live in Tennessee. And here's the 12 Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. Number one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Number two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Number three, the only requirement for OA membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. Number four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Number five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Number six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. And number seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Number eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Number nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Number 10, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Number 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. And number 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate your service. All right, how our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature and stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that our sharing be directly linked to what was read. We're sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you're done sharing, let us know by saying pass then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book on page XXV in the doctor's opinion. Uh, And we're gonna start with the letter itself and we're gonna read three paragraphs from to whom it may concern down through the man and over a hundred others appear to have recovered. 
Okay. I'm now going to ask Lulu L. to begin reading. Lulu? Yes. Can I be heard? Yes. Age-old question. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. I am so appreciative to be able to read this morning. My name is Lulu L., and I am in Florida, a gratefully and joyously recovered compulsive overeater, at least for this moment. Thank you. And I just feel so blessed to be able to begin reading this section of the book that Dr. Silkworth wrote for us. To whom it may concern, I've specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appeared to have appear to have recovered. Big breath, right? This, there's a lot. Of course, the word hopeless popped off the page to me because I was so completely and completely hopeless. And I looked up the word hopeless, and it it refers to hopeless as having feelings of despair or inadequate to make changes. I I was so desperate. I was felt so defeated. No matter what I had tried for years and years and years, decades, nothing had ever helped me. I mean, I did all the things that you guys have done, probably stuff you haven't done, just like you've done stuff I haven't done, everything from eating stuff out of the garbage Throwing it out in the yard, I don't know why I thought throwing it out in the yard would solve my problem. Because anyway, I just did horrible things, exercise, bulimia, I I fasted. I called it fasting, but really that's also known to us as restriction for months at a time. I, I just tried it all and more. Everything I tried just brought me to a place of desperation and despair and hopelessness over and over and over and over again. I kept going back to the food. I really feel that paragraph. But I feel the lightheartedness. I feel the hope that does come from paragraph number three. Because he he did become recovered. And then he figured out that nothing ensured his own sobriety for us, our food sobriety, like helping others. So he learned that he must do likewise. I had to do likewise with still others. I had to give away what I learned from my sponsor, from this meeting, from the material. I learned that working with others is my only defense that 
partnered with God, with my higher power. This man and over 100 others appeared to have recovered, and we know there's way more than 100 others now. And for us, recovered, at least for me, means neutrality around food. Means I'm not driven, pulled, pulled down into the depths of the bags and the boxes. These three paragraphs just kick us off into what Dr. Silkworth offered to us by way of Bill W. It, it is life-changing if we allow it to change us. If I crack open my heart and surrender and allow God's work in me, then I am able to become recovered. And those feelings of hopelessness fly away like birds. They're just gone. They're just gone. And I have deep and abiding feelings of hope as long as I stay hand in hand with my creator. And so with that, I will pass. Hard to pass, but I will pass. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Lulu. Okay. Uh, We're now going to take a list of names. I'm going to remind you that if you've shared on any uh, vision meeting in the last uh, three days, that means on Monday or Friday, uh, that we ask you to hold back and let other people have a chance to just talk. So uh, who would like to share on these three paragraphs? Harlan G. Julie M. Melissa C. Julie M. Harlan. I got you, Julie. I got you, Harlan, Julie, Melissa. Who else? Vasa O. Vasa O. Susan C. Susan. Okay, guys. Who? I have Harlan, Julie, Melissa, Vasa, and Susan. Anybody else? All right, well, let's get started then. Good morning, Harlan. You're up. Thanks, Craig. I'm Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. On the 27th of July, 1938, Dr. Silkworth penned this letter for Bill Wilson to use as an introductory letter as a fundraiser that he was doing. Bill and Hank were engaged in a lot of raising money, unsuccessfully, thank God. But in July of 1938, Dr. Silkworth wrote this letter for Bill Wilson as a way of introducing not only himself, Dr. Silkworth, but Bill Wilson to people that he was trying to get money from for the book project. In November of 1938, as the book project started to solidify, Bill Wilson had this letter and asked Dr. Silkworth at the town's hospital if he could use it as part of his book because it did a very effective job of introducing he, Bill, to the reader 
remember, we haven't had Bill's story yet. Bill's story was originally in the back of the book, and then an editor, there were two editors in the big book, and the two editors, one was uh, Janet Blair, she did the grammar, and then there was Tom Uzzle, he did the content. He moved Bill Wilson's story to page one, or not page one, at that time it was after the doctor's opinion. The doctor's opinion in the first edition was the first chapter. But anyway, let's take a look at this letter. And in this letter, we introduce Dr. Silkworth to the reader, but we're also introducing Bill Wilson to the reader. There were two conditions that the letter could be printed in the book. One was that Bill's name had to be redacted, and Dr. Silkworth insisted that his name be redacted, because remember that the theories, the opinions that we're going to be presented with here in the doctor's opinion were opinions of Dr. William Duncan Silkworth by sheer observation alone. He didn't have any scientific backing for the physical allergy. He didn't have any scientific backing for the fact that there was an effect Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. We're going to read that paragraph in, a, in a, next week. But the bottom line is none of this was scientifically verifiable. So Dr. Silkworth's name had to be redacted until the 11th printing of the first edition, and Bill Wilson's name is redacted from this letter. But what do we know about Bill Wilson? He will be hospitalized three times that were talked about that are talked about in the big book. Uh, other indications are that he was hospitalized four times, but for the purpose of this, it doesn't matter. What's going to happen is the first two times Bill Wilson is going to be hospitalized, he will have no absolutely no inkling that there is relief available for his situation. Because of Ebby Thatcher, Ebby Thatcher will come into his life in late November. Well, he came into his life as a child, but uh, Ebby Thatcher will come to him in late November of 1934 and present him with the Oxford Group tenants, the six tenants of the Oxford Group, and the four absolutes. So for the third hospitalization in December of 1934, Bill will recover and never return to drink as long as he lives. When we see this word hopeless, one of the things we have to remember is because a lot of people will banter this out and say, well, if I'm hopeless, why do I have to do all this work? I'm just going to die. Hopeless can also mean I'm out of ideas. Are you out of ideas? When I was young, I was 24 years old, I came in here and they would say to me, are you out of ideas yet, kid? Are you out of ideas yet, kid? I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room and three, 400 pounds fatter than anybody in that room, too. But if you look at this letter from the standpoint of which I'm describing it, you will see that it is really an introductory letter introducing Bill Wilson to potential donors. But it fits beautifully into the narrative of the book because not only does it introduce Bill Wilson, whose name is never spoken in this part of the uh, book, but it also introduces us to the credibility of Dr. Silkworth. He says, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. So if he has specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years, which actually wasn't many years, he was hired at Towns Hospital in excuse me, in November of 29 and wrote this book in 38. So it was uh, nine years, but that's, that's all right. That's fine. But the bottom line is, is that the book introduces 
Silkworth to the reader establishes the credibility of Silkworth, and it establishes Bill Wilson to the reader and shows him for what he is, an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, and in the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery, and the bottom line will continue to be this man, and over 100 others appear to have recovered. And this this word recovered is one that just blows a lot of people's mind. Can you recover? The big book says you can. Can you be cured? No. Can you be permanently cured? No. But I never have to eat that way again as long as every day of my life I do the work in front of me in this program. I will never find it necessary ever to eat that way that I used to eat that ruined my life and the lives of those around me. And since I don't have a timer in front of me, and since I assume I'm getting close to three minutes or three hours, I will personally pass, Craig. Thanks for your service. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Harlan. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, next up, we have uh, Julie M. Julie? Good morning, everyone. My name is Julie M. from upstate New York, currently in sunny Puerto Rico, giving thanks to God for being here and allowing me to be on the line this morning. Uh, it's uh, nine months ago, I felt hopeless. And just like the previous speaker just said, I was out of ideas. And um, I got on, down on my knees and I said, God, help me because I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I can't stop eating and nine months later i have neutrality with food today but that's by god's grace and by doing the work um i had the great opportunity to speak with my sponsor before i got on this meeting this morning and um you know i get my messages and um i started with the complaining and then i did a huge gratitude list with my husband and i just said it out loud and i just am so grateful for this program I don't feel hopeless anymore. I have a lot of wisdom in these rooms. Everyone shares from the heart. They tell, I receive the message every day. If I'm open-minded, willing, and willing, and surrendering to do whatever I need to do each day to keep abstinent. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it was a clear, it's a clear message in the doctor's opinion, you know, and, um, it, it seems that I am recovered for today, and I know that for today I am recovered with God's grace and all of you on the line, and I am eternally grateful. And yesterday I had an experience that one of my cousins said to me, um, you know, stop being wimpy with the food and take everything that you have to take. And a wise sponsor told me last week, you know, just give them a hug when they push the food because what they're doing is showing love. And I forgot to do that yesterday, but from here on out, while I'm visiting, I will give them a hug and say thank you. And with that, everyone have a great and wonderful day, and thank you so much for everyone's experience on the line. I am eternally grateful for Vision and for all of you. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Julie. Uh, next up, we have Melissa C. Melissa? Melissa is going to be followed by Vasa and then Susan. Hey, and then so Anita. Much. Well, hi, Craig. 
Yeah, thank you so much for your service. I don't know if I'm stepping on you talking. I apologize if I am. Um, I'm Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York, and, you know, I um, something really profound happened for me when I, you know, read the doctor's opinion, and I made this one slight change in the book. You know, it, it's the letter starts off with to whom it may concern. And when I put Dear Melissa next to that letter, um, my life opened up because I started reading this book as though I, because I'm the concerned. I'm the one that this letter is addressing. Um, and when I read it that way, I, I started approaching it from a different angle. You know, it talks about, um, you know, being uh, competent with good earning capacity, but still hopeless. And that rings really true for me because um, I could seem competent, you know, I had good earning capacity, you know, my experience is um, I didn't lose custody of my kids because of this disease, I never was arrested, you know, for driving under the influence of eating, um, and I continued to work, you know, I was able to pay the mortgage and, and seem competent, although I have to say, you know, my um, my own standards for what I considered competent, you know, um, became lower and lower and lower as the disease progressed. What I today would look at as competent would, hor- you know, what I considered competent back then would horrify me today. If I thought about walking around in the world behaving the way that I behaved, I definitely wasn't competent. But, you know, I seemed competent, um, and yet I was hopeless. And, you know, for me, hopeless meant I kept trying the same damn methods over and over and over again that didn't work. You know, if it worked well once, um, I would be committed to it to do it over and over and over again. And, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, I was told, is is ridiculous um, and hopeless, you know. Um, And so part of my treatment is exactly what was described here, that, as part of my rehabilitation to present, you know, to commence to present these conceptions to others, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others and that this is what, you know, this is what grows our fellowship and this is what has grown my own recovery. And so right from the get-go, I'm told here that I have to start thinking about other people that for me today, part of my rehabilitation, you know, it meant Christmas Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, that I was working with sponsees, that I was, you know, that I was engaging in my, in the work that I do, because that's part of my rehabilitation. And I, you know, and I hope to continue to do that. Um, I know my time is up. Um, Indefinitely, if that's the way that I want to live, and that I have appeared to recover, meaning that yesterday, I'll just say this, all the Christmas junk that was laying around my house, that still is laying around my house, I have zero interest in. I am not calling upon willpower to avoid them. They simply don't exist for me. The problem has been removed. And um, if that's something you want, then this program possibly is for you. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Okay, Melissa, thank you very much. Next, we have Vasa O, followed by Susan, and then we're going to take another list of names. So. Uh, Vasa. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Greg, for your service. I'm Vasa. Grateful, recovered, compulsive, where you're calling from Port Charlotte, 
Florida. And uh, yes, this is where I was when I came to my first meeting. And it was October 26, 1986. And uh, I was that hopeless, powerless person. With everything I tried, it just nothing worked. It would work for a little bit. And I would always give in into the food addiction. <laughs> and I started identifying with people. And I felt like I was at home. I, you know, I wasn't alone struggling with the food addiction, which I didn't know anything about addictions, especially with food or allergy. I remember saying, who ever thought that food was an addiction? You know, everybody's eating food, you know. Well, not not everybody eats it like I, I did. But, and I see there's more people struggling with the food addiction today than anything else, you know. They say usually 60%, I don't know how many percent people. But I was, uh, I gave in into the food by the time I came to my first meeting for a while, you know, because trying to diet, because I remember with everything I had done, over and over and over. It just did not work. It worked only for a little bit, but I always gave in into the food. I was just so grateful that my sponsor gave me the big book. And remember saying, I'm not an alcoholic. I guess I'm a food addict. And she would say, well, just cross alcohol, put food on the top. And I could identify, no, I never went to a treatment in the hospital. And this is my treatment that you know, this is my treatment coming to the program, and it didn't even cost anything. If we had money to put in the basket, it was great. And if we didn't, we didn't even have to do that. I said, what a blessing, you know. And yes, from that powerless, uh, helpless person, I was ready to surrender to a power greater than myself, and I was willing to do whatever it took for me just to stay away from those toxic foods. And I came in October. Everything was after October. All the holidays was my daughter's birthday and Halloween, our anniversary, my husband's and my anniversary, Christmas parties. And I remember I was so afraid. My sponsor kept on saying, we only do this one day at a time, one meal at a time. And that's all I could do. I, I couldn't even do from one meal to the next, you know, but I would get on my knees. When the obsession came back, I would ask God to please remove the obsession, the compulsion. And my mind would go somewhere else. Would, or my sponsor would say, go and do your laundry, go for a walk, or get on the phone meeting, use the tools, whatever it took. I don't know how long it took, but the obsession finally lifted because I wasn't putting those toxic foods into my body. It was torture at the beginning, going through the withdrawals. And I'm not afraid today, you know, going back back to the food. If I keep on doing what I'm doing, and it's working, and I don't worry, and I'm not afraid of the food. It's just learning how to deal with life and life's problems, working the rest of the steps, being, being abstinent. But this was a gift for me that, you know, my sponsor gave me a gift. Thank you very much, Craig. This is a gift. I never understood it was a gift, but it is a gift, and I'm so grateful for it. Thank you, and I pass. 
All right, Vasa, thank you. Next, we have Susan C., and then we'll take another list of names. Susan? Thank you. This is Susan C. from Pennsylvania. And um, I have to say, I have been in program since 1994. I have recovery, and it was through the big book, and it was great. And um, I I didn't continue in that way. And... um, And it struck me as I was reading this about the doctor's opinion, how he was humble about um, that he didn't know everything, you know, and he didn't come from a place of like ego. And I thought, oh, and he's and he was admitting it. And um, that really struck me, you know, and um I've been in the field of health and nutrition for over 25 years, so um, I had that um, ego and pride, like I, you know, that I knew what to do and I knew what to do and I knew what to do, and yet, um, you know, I had ups and downs uh, with. Uh, getting into recovery and um so i started on this meeting and i i might have like just listened for most of the time which was unusual that i just would listen and hear everybody's experience strength and hope and i felt so peaceful being on the meetings and um it really helped me a lot in in a lot of ways. And then I found, you know, that I needed help and asking for help. And that's part of, you know, like the pride and, um, and being able to do that. And, um, and then hopefully to be able to be of service to other people too. I think that's, you know, part of the whole circle you know, to be able to to do that and and to keep it and to take care of myself and then um, be there for other people and just learning to listen and not to have all the answers for myself or for anyone else. It's really um, an eye-opener. And... uh, I just I really appreciate hearing everybody's stories on the meetings and um just it gives me a lot of hope. I'm very grateful. Thank you. All right, thank you. Okay. Now we're ready to take another list of names. I remind you if you shared on Monday or Friday. Margaret. Oops, sorry. Okay. Go ahead. All right, thanks, Margaret. So uh, who else would like to share? Christina J. Christina J. Michelle N. Michelle N. I got you, Michelle. Thank you. Felicia S. Felicia S. Can I get one more? Katie B. All right, Katie B. Yes. All right, 
There's my one more. All right. Let's go. Then we've got Margaret D., Christina P., Blanc, Pete B., uh, Michelle N., uh, Felicia S., Katie R., and Blanca. What was Blanca's last initial? We'll get it when we talk. All right. Uh, let's go back. Margaret D. Uh, Margaret, you're up. Thanks, Craig. Um, good morning, everybody. My name is Margaret D. I'm in Georgia. Um, I want to fast forward to page 170, which actually doesn't have a page number. But what we're reading now is the pre, if you will, sequel, or the, you know, it's before the story or the beginning of the story. And on page 170, it has a really interesting slant on after, if you will, the story. And so it starts out, Pioneers of AA, Dr. Bob and the nine men and women who here tell their stories were among the early members of AA's first groups. All 10 have now passed away of natural causes, having maintained complete sobriety. Today, hundreds of additional AA members can be found who have had no relapse for more than 50 years. And here's the paragraph that really gets me all the time. All of these, then, are the pioneers of AA. They bear witness that release from alcoholism can really be permanent. Um, so whenever it gets really, whenever I just get in despair or whatever, you know, I go back and look at that page because if the pi the first pioneers had permanent recover, and that's what they're telling us, then there is hope. So I would urge everybody to read the big book for themselves uh, whenever possible. You'll find all kinds of gems and jewels there. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Uh, next up, we have uh, Christina P., I think it was. Christina? Hey, Craig, it's Christina J. in North Carolina. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so, you know, when I first came in and really throughout my whole time in this, I'm not impressed with a doctor. You know, I, I have been to doctors. Uh, so um, this specialization in the treatment doesn't really do anything for me. I'm just being honest. What does something for me is someone that says, I have specialized in recovery from alcoholism for many years your stories your recovery stories your relapse stories and coming out of relapse that's what got to me because that's what I can relate to human to human story to story this is what gave me hope in a hopeless situation because I floundered around for years like many of us and you know there's a lot of meetings out there that have recovery now but when I first found vision that's the first time I heard it and from a hopeless state of body and mind, from shame, from horror, from guilt, from not being able to stop, I heard something that made me want to cry because I thought, oh, my God, I don't have to do this anymore. Are you kidding me? Um, and, you know, another thing that stands out to me in this paragraph, oh, first I want to share that yesterday, you know, we went to dinner for Christmas at a friend's house, and they had every manner of cookies and fudge and all this kind of stuff. And I had my exquisite, wonderful meal, a part of which I brought with me. And I was a happy camper. I was balanced. I had a good, moderate portion of things. And I could look at that stuff and 
and go, yeah, that's that's really delicious, but I don't want to go there. I can't go there. I, I have a first step that's really strong now. I'm powerless over that first bite, that taste, that whatever, and I don't even want it. So that just I just think abstinence is the greatest miracle of the holiday season for me through this season. Like last year, I was in the food completely and horrible, which is just miserable. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. This makes me cry. This is where God is impressing upon his heart or higher power, whatever you want to call it. Go out. Help other people with your story. With your story. You know, and that you must help others. Be of service. You know, to me, this is what we're here for when we get through all the crap in life of getting ours and getting our big houses and our cars and, and you know, our purses and our special shoes and all this kind of stuff. And that all just dies on the vine. I'm like looking at it, collecting dust in my closet. What does it do for anybody? You know, I used to dress up really cute as a model when I was younger and go out. People would look at me, but I was so lonely inside. It does nothing. I've got a composted soul full of my life now at 65 years old that I can give to others. And now that I'm in recovery, I can share, you know, I can share that beautiful presence of being recovered and just helping others. Even if they're not an addict, I can sit and hold space as they share their hearts with me. This is what helps me stay recovered because my heart grows leaps and bounds by helping others. And I just think this is a huge miracle right here that uh, God gives uh, Bill, I think it's Bob or Bill. I don't. <laughs> sorry, I don't know the huge history. Anyway, thanks for letting me share. I'm so grateful to be over the hump of Christmas. Bless you all. I pass. Thanks, Christina. Next, we have Pete B. Followed by Michelle and then Felicia. Pete. Thank you, Craig, for taking the meeting. My name's Pete B. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I'm recovered today by God's grace and mercy. And uh, you know, I love, I, I love how. Um, you know, when I was first taken through the the book, I was I was told to start with the doctor's opinion, and and I think as an alcoholic and a compulsive overeater, we're going to want to know about the medical estimate of the plan of recovery, but we're also going to want to know from a medical professional, a scientist, the medical assessment of what this condition is, and that's why I think it's very helpful that the book starts with the doctor's opinion because I needed to know. From some, not from somebody that has frothy emotional peel or somebody's going to tell me about their history to know about the severity of the condition. I needed to know from a neutral party, and I needed it to be established that this is, in fact, a condition. And the only hope we have to, re, to recover from it is to be entirely abstinent, right, and that we have an opportunity to become recovered, which means that we can return to normal to the state that the creator has put has has made me to be in. And I also, you know, I love what what uh, somebody shared earlier about insanity. About doing the same that that insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. You know, when is it that as a fellowship, as an organization of recovered compulsive overeaters, we take a look at the message that we're trying to carry? to the next sick and suffering compulsive overeater. This idea that something other than a spiritual experience or the only way to have a spiritual experience is to do it by the way we tell them to do it. Carrying the message that you know you need to make a certain amount of phone calls and you need to do a certain amount of this or you need to read this, that, or the other thing. When do we take a look at our history 
and our record of success being less than 1%, do we say, well, maybe this is not the message that we should be carrying? Maybe it's not a we program. Maybe we can't get anybody recovered. Maybe, maybe the message is that this can be done by having a spiritual experience. And all the other nonsense that we tell people that they have to do, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that less than 1% of the people that come here ever, ever recover? You sure, it may work for, it may work for the, the less than 1%, and it may be fine and dandy. But what about the other more than 99% that don't get it? And how effective are we actually being? You know, we talk about being food neutral. I've ceased fighting everybody and everything. And that may sound divisive. It might sound authoritative. But I'm not trying to, I'm not running a popularity contest. This is life or death for me. And I am no way, no how ever going back to eating those substances that I know cause the abnormal reaction. And I'll do it with or without the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. But the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous, the we, gives us a platform to carry this message, not my message, not someone else's, but this message of recovery. The only hope we have is, a, is, is having a spiritual experience as a result of working the steps, or maybe some other, or maybe something else. But what's essential is a spiritual experience. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. All right, Pete. Thanks. Next up, we have Michelle N. Followed by Felicia S. Then KDR. Michelle. Yes. Good morning, everybody. This is my second time at this meeting, and I'm so glad to be here, uh, reading the big book with you. And I really feel guided. To do this, I'm in a couple other uh, 12-step programs, and my sponsor is in OA, and she recommended this meeting to me. And um, so I started listening and the other day, and I, I feel like I belong here, but um, I, still, I still am not sure. So the deal with me is um, I uh, I live, uh, okay, there's things that I do not um, want to eat that I know are bad for me. And I live with a person who um, focuses on eating those things. And um, I love this person. This person is my spouse. My spouse has no recovery and um, encourages me to eat uh, certain things that are bad for me, bad for my health. I feel like um, to please him, to please him, I need to eat a little bit, at least, of what he is offering. He cooks and he loves to cook and, um, you know, therein lies the problem. So to be true to, and he doesn't force anything on me ever, really. And um, it's all in my head that 
you know, I create these problems for myself and that I, you know, want to, quote, make him happy. And by eating the wrong things. And so it's so it's really good to be here because um, it will uh, give me focus that I can use my program, uh, the 12-step program, on this situation. And um, I feel like if I lived by myself, I would be able to, you know, <laughs> and didn't come in contact with anybody, I would be able to abstain. And it's just the influence around me of other people. Um, yeah. So I think you get the get get the idea. Thank you so much for this meeting, for letting me share. And uh, I do know that this program works and has worked in other areas of my life. And um, I guess that is my message. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Michelle. Next up, we have Felicia S., then Katie R., and then uh, Monka. Hi. So, hi. Good morning. Felicia S. from New Jersey, um, recovering compulsive overeater. Oh, deep breath. I'm grateful to be here. Um, and I love not only what we read today, but everything everyone said. I was reminded um, many years ago, I got sober in another fellowship. And both my food addiction and all my other addictions were killing me. And I decided that what I actually needed was a psychiatrist. And there was a pill that was going to fix me. You know, I had been in and out of the rooms for a number of years of all the fellowships, OA, AA, didn't matter. Nothing was working. And the problem was I needed something to fix me. And I went to this psychiatrist and God love him, exactly like with Dr. Silkworth, he knew he could not fix me. He knew that I needed a spiritual experience. And would say to me on an on a weekly basis, you are sick. You are weak. I can help you, but I can't do anything until you get sober. And once I got sober, eventually, you know, it would take years before I would become willing, and the food would beat me into a sense of reasonableness. Um, and by grace. You know, I sit here 10 months in recovery um, from from my eating disorder, and that's after over 40 years. And that does not happen if, if you all aren't here, if Bill and Bob don't get together, if Dr. Silkworth doesn't believe. It, it is this beautiful and magical fellowship one day at a time. Um, and it is not easy, and it, and it is not always what I want, but it is always what I need. And I'm so glad to be here today. I'll pass. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Next, uh, we have um, Katie R. Katie, you're up. Hi. Good morning. This is Katie B. in New York. Can you hear me okay? 
Katie B. Yes, thank you. Hi, thanks for your service. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, excuse me. The words that are jumping off the page to me are hopeless, recovered, and commenced to present. And as I'm sort of reflecting on this being the day after Christmas, I'm really grateful that yesterday was my fifth Christmas in recovery. And I can't believe, like, excuse me, that I'm saying that because I felt so hopeless for so many years. And Christmas used to be, most of the time it was my last hurrah. Like, okay, New Year's is it. I gave up around Halloween. (laughs) I've been going downhill ever since. I've really given up by now. The diet starts next week. And I, I just, and, and it was hopeless because it was the same thing every year. And then usually, you know, sometimes I would start strong in January. And then over the years, as my disease progressed, it was more and more hopeless. And I, I couldn't hold on to diets successfully for even like a week at some point. Um, and to now celebrate my fifth Christmas, you know, it's, it's, it's a miracle beyond miracles. Um, to say that I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And as I was at, you know, our Christmas dinner visiting the same relatives that it's been for many, many years, you know, in the beginning of my recovery, they would say like, oh, what are you doing? And I was embarrassed and I would be like, oh, I'm, I'm just not eating certain things. I'm not having dessert. I would sort of skirt around it. And, um, and oh, I love your willpower. And I wasn't at a place where I was able to say what, my truth was, what the truth was. And now for the past couple of years when they say, oh, you're not eating this. Oh, what are you doing? You know, they want to hear about the next diet, right? And I get to present to them the truth, which is, oh, I'm in a 12-step program. Oh, really? This has nothing to do with my willpower. You know, God is doing it for me. Part, You know, in the beginning, it felt a little awkward saying that stuff. But what a gift it get! I, I, like I, I feel so joyful now that I get to say to them, hey, you know, like they were all talking about starting on their pay in ways and they want to pay for it next year. And I actually like joked, I was like, you know, OA is free. It's just a donation if you want to make it. And I get to share with them, you know, God is doing for me what I could never do for myself. And I got to tell them yesterday how hopeless I was and how this has given me the strength, God. And the program has given me the strength, and and I just feel so joyful that I get to share that. And um, yeah, and blessed. All right, have a great day. Thanks. I'll pass. All right, thank you very much. Next we have Blanca, and uh, Blanca, tell us your last initial. Hi. Good morning. Um, this is uh, Blanca um, from Central Florida. Blanca BG. Uh, happy holidays, everyone, brothers and sisters, and program and. Thank you, moderator. Um, I um, Yesterday was Christmas, as we all know, and uh, it was a joyful time for me because it is no longer, I am happy to say, through the grace of the program, about the food. You know, it's about seeing my grandchildren as they open up their presents and talking with people I haven't seen for a while. And that, that in itself is has been miracle enough for me. Um, You know, and uh, am I perfect? Absolutely not. 
However, you know, abstinence is a personal thing. And my abstinence is where I might try something new. There were a couple of things yesterday on uh, in the way of food that was, I'd never had before. And I thought, well, let me try this. And I did. And I was okay. I did not go back for more. I tried it. I thought, that's nice. That's good. It did not trigger me. And that's very important because it's, as it says in the big book, we cannot hide away from, from life. We have to show up and, and, and make an appearance for our families, you know, for holidays and parties and whatever it might be. You know, it says the, uh, the drunks, um, you know, cannot, there will be times when you will have to be at the bar. You will have because that's where the party is or that's where the family is. And so for that, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Um, <clears throat> also, I'd like to, uh, you know, agree with the uh, speaker who said um, it is very true that uh, the people are, are more in disease now in this country. It's, it's become quite, quite the problem, quite the medical problem. And I do believe that it all does have to do with a spiritual awakening. I believe for me that was the only way. Um, and then uh, the food, uh, the food was was a you know followed. I know for others it's different. It's put it down first, and then the rest will happen. But I was so damaged mentally and emotionally uh, as a result of, of self destruction. What I did to to myself in my life that there was no way I was going to put down the food until I could start peeling away the trauma and the things that happened to me so I could understand what led me to the food in the first place. Now, that's how it was for me. It isn't that way for everyone. It's a personal journey. And on that, I will pass. Happy holidays. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. So um, I want to thank everyone who shared today. And I also want to thank uh, Team Tuesday in December, all the people that uh, the readers uh, and uh, that uh, contribute to make this program go and grow. And uh, uh, thank you for your service and your time. The share ID uh, for today's meeting that just concluded is twenty thousand nine sixty nine two zero nine six nine. That's for December twenty sixth, twenty twenty three. We're now going to close with a reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Will, uh, let's see, Darlene H., please read A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only through Keep You Until Then. Good morning, Darlene H., recovered in Georgia. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. 
Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. All right, thank you. Now I'm going to ask everybody to press star one to unmute and join me in saying the serenity prayer. 